Welcome to the Xterra Podcast. I'm Tom Patton. We hear a lot these days about rideshare missions. The recent SpaceX Transporter 6 mission carried 114 payloads into orbit. But each of those payloads needed a way to reach its assigned orbit. Impulse Space Propulsion is a Space 2.0 company providing those last mile space payload delivery capabilities. And my guest today is Barry Matsumori, the Chief Operating Officer of Impulse Space. Barry, welcome to the program. How are you doing? Doing very well, thanks. I uh, hope you're doing as well as well. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's just start off talking about getting a brief overview of Impulse Space and what it is that you do. Sure. So uh, it's easy to talk about Impulse being started in late 2021 and that it was founded by a gentleman by the name of Tom Mueller. Tom Mueller was one of the founding members of SpaceX, along with Elon, of course, and he ran the propulsion team at SpaceX for most all of his career and uh, decided to leave and created this entity. And uh, we are now in the middle of realizing a vision regarding not only is there access to space from Earth to orbit, but that in order for space to really become uh, a realized space commerce, it needs transportation infrastructure. And that's what we're developing. Now, of course, that all starts with your propulsion technology. What, What makes yours unique? So... First thing I'll clarify is we are a transportation service company and that uh, propulsion is part of what a vehicle is, a space vehicle is, but the fact is there are many systems on there. Uh, That said, I'm glad you raised propulsion because all space vehicles start with the propulsion system and get get designed from there. In our case, uh, we've been busy developing two different propulsion systems that uh, are focused around being low cost and reliable, not necessarily innovative, because those those three functions don't necessarily work together. There, there are obviously research and development costs associated with doing something innovative. So, what are you doing that is um, that is taking existing technology and improving it for the folks that want to use it? There are lots of ways to. Uh, achieve low cost and reliability. The reliability part is a lot in the design, and that's where having a very experienced propulsion team is important. Uh, Much of the propulsion team are former SpaceX. They've had a lot of experience working on such systems there. But on top of that, using modern manufacturing uh, techniques as well as in the design, lowering the number of parts. But uh, things like additive manufacturing uh, make the design of propulsion systems, uh, thrust chambers, all those much less expensive than in the past. So what does the, the term last mile space payload delivery capabilities mean? Uh, so as you mentioned, this last transporter uh, had several vehicles on there that a few, I should say a few vehicles that provided some of that last mile transport. What it means is adding an additional stage, if you will, vehicle stage that will place a payload to its final orbit uh, that is different than where a vehicle, a common bus, if you will, like Transporter 6, will deliver to a common location. But some of those payloads need to go to a custom orbit. And that last mile delivery can do that. That said, last mile deliveries is kind of 
a near-term fix to a, a, a longer-term issue that we need to resolve, and that is, what's the architecture of space? Uh, right now, <clears throat> space is set so that you go from Earth to a final orbit, Earth to a final orbit. For a 1Z, 2Z, 3Z kind of business, works fine. For a business that has thousands of satellites that are going to be going, going to be going to space, one needs a different model. Um, and the way to look at it is just like a container ship showing up to the port of Long Beach mm -hmm. has thousands of containers. What does it do on the other side when it gets to land? <clears throat> it doesn't have a great big truck on the other side. It has a myriad of 18 wheelers that distribute that cargo. Space is no different. And uh, to scale, space needs to use LEO, low Earth orbit, as a parking orbit. And then vehicles such as ours will provide ongoing distribution to various orbits, whether it's low Earth orbit, geostationary orbit, or lunar or even a Mars orbit or beyond. What makes your propellant green? Uh, green propellants are defined as those that are primarily non-toxic, uh, as well as they tend to be more storable. And so in our case, uh, we use nitrous oxide, which <clears throat> not that uh, dentists a while back <laughs> used it as a sedative. So it's obviously uh, uh, palatable to be used by humans, although not recommended for dentists anymore. And then uh, we use ethane. Ethane is a variant of propane, and we all use propane in our households uh, for barbecues and other applications. Mm -hmm. And if propane leaks, uh, leaks anywhere, uh, humans will not automatically die compared to uh, chemicals like uh, nitrogen tetroxide or other very, very virulent uh, chemicals that are, are really difficult for humans to be around. Yeah, we hear a lot about hydrazine and some of the problems hydrazine, associated yes. with that. Um, yes. but, but I've got to tell you, Barry, the last time I was at the dentist, um, he, he used some nitrous oxide and I was not unhappy. <laughs> It is a sedative and it also does some other, has some other characteristics, but should not be used in volume. But again, when they talk about green propellant, that's mostly for folks on the ground. That doesn't make that much difference in space. There is a point though, and that's if a propellant doesn't have sufficient energy, it's not much use. So it can be green, but it also has to have the ability to achieve reasonably high uh, uh, specific impulse, uh, ISP, so that the performance of the vehicle uh, can actually reach the orbits that are intended. Now, Impulse Space had a great year last year with two rounds of successful financing and partnering with Relativity, Relativity Space for your first commercial voyage to Mars and your recently announced LEO mission. Let's start with that LEO mission. Tell us about that and what's involved and, and how is the partnership working with you? Yes. So for that for that uh, Leo mission that's on Transporter Nine, SpaceX Transporter Nine in October of this year, uh, it's a delivery of some payloads to uh, various uh, low Earth uh, Leo orbits, and uh, pretty straightforward. We'll get released from Transporter Nine, uh, and then go and release a first set of payloads, and then release a final set of payloads, and then do some orbital maneuvers to demonstrate the capabilities of the vehicle. Does low Earth orbit represent any unique challenges other than what you've been doing in the past? I, th I think that 
that uh, in many ways, uh, low Earth orbit in its of itself, just to release is not necessarily uh, a challenge other than doing anything in space is always uh, fraught with difficulties. But, but being able to do a high degree of maneuverability, whether moving between orbits or being able to do maneuvers like uh, very, uh, what's called V-LEO, very low, uh, low Earth orbit, uh, is, is a capability that we want to be able to show that our vehicle is pretty agile and can do that. And then let's talk about the Mars mission a little bit uh, and the partnership with Relativity Space. How did that come about and what are some of the parameters that you're talking about? Yes, that that partnership came about in late 21 when the management of uh, Relativity Space and uh, the management of Impulse, primarily Tom Mueller, uh, had some conversations and they wanted something with uh, a challenge for Relativity Space's Terran R vehicle. And we certainly wanted to rise to that challenge. And we both agreed that Mars was the destination. And to make it even more challenging, let's go to the surface. And so what uh, do you have any outline for what the mission is going to hope to accomplish at that point? Is it is it just a landing? Is What, what are you looking at to do in that mission? So let me describe uh, the mission just, just to understand the complex, just to start to begin to understand the complexity. Okay. Uh, first of all, the Terranar rocket uh, needs to launch from Earth and take us into a Mars injection orbit. And then we have three elements on our Mars <clears throat> Mars vehicle. We have a cruise stage that is taking us from Terran R injection to uh, Mars and uh, be able to provide course corrections along the way, as well as communications. And then <clears throat> when we get to the Mars uh, orbit, that we will enter Mars. And the first thing we have to do is protect because for thermal reasons, because Mars does have an atmosphere. And if you enter Mars without thermal protection, you will burn up. Mm. So uh, we have a heat shield that has to provide that protection. And then once, once you've gone through and slowed down enough that we need a parachute to even further slow us down and, <clears throat> and be able to start getting to the surface. And then finally, we need a propulsion system and our approach is a propulsion system to actually mm -hmm. land the, the surface, Mars surface vehicle. And uh, all of those are a pretty complex set of elements. Uh, it's been done. Uh, and oddly enough, we're very much looking at the, the NASA InSight mission and going to model a lot of it because a lot of good work was done there. And there's no reason for us to re redesign aspects of that mission that were done very well. No reason to reinvent the wheel. Is there any of the NASA technology transfer that's coming into that mission? Are you, are you actually getting NASA technology to incorporate into the mission? Uh, we certainly are getting a lot of cooperation and insight. Uh, the technology per se is out there. Uh, and some of it is actually in the public domain, mm -hmm. but I think it's more the experience and knowledge that NASA has that is unique in what they've done, particularly on the inside mission. Why shoot for Mars? Is it just because everybody's going to the moon and so we'll <laughs> shoot for Mars? <laughs> uh, we definitely wanted to be bold and we wanted to be able to do uh, demonstrate 
the harder thing, and that is to go to the surface of Mars. Uh, and we definitely want to go to the lunar surface, and we can do that with the Mars vehicle that we have. But but the starter is really Mars, and then get to get to the moon. So what then demonstrates mission success for you? I mean, we had, um, unfortunately, the, uh, the, the Virgin Orbit launch that happened yesterday as we record this was not able to get their payloads into orbit. And yet they still say the mission was a success because they were able to reach space. And, and I don't know how much of that is spin, how much of that is, is true. So, so to you in this Mars mission and even in your LEO mission, what, what represents mission success? I think mission success for us is to land on the surface of Mars and be able to uh, either deploy or demonstrate the capabilities of some of the payloads that we have. Those payloads we're not talking about just yet, but uh, that is the mission success for us. Do you have a timeline uh, in we, general? We are targeting the first Mars window available, the next Mars window, and that is late 2024, December of 2024. I'm talking with Barry Matsumori, the Chief Operating Officer of Impulse Space on the Xterra podcast. Take a moment right now to click subscribe to be sure you don't miss any of our podcasts, or if you're watching on YouTube, any of the videos from Xterra the Journal of Space Commerce. Now, Barry, you're quite experienced in Space 2.0 and high-tech startups, so give us a little bit about your background. Great. Yes, yeah, you're right. I have been around for a while, <laughs> but uh, I mean, some of us are, are a lot of us are a little long in the tooth, so don't worry about that. <laughs> but hopefully, I've been learning along the way. Uh, I've been fortunate to be part of two pretty pretty significant companies. Uh, I'm an early Qualcomm employee uh, in San Diego, and uh, joined them back in 1993 when they weren't even the cell phone business yet. So that was great. And then along the way, I also got recruited to join SpaceX in 2011. And back then, uh, we had just done a demonstration mission of Falcon 9. But really, SpaceX was not the famous company that it is now. Hmm. And so being able to be part of the team that grows SpaceX into becoming something very special, including seeing the first landing of a first stage it's it's a uh, it's an honor to have been part of both companies, and I'm hoping that we can do the same with Impulse that we make it a very significant contributor to space. Who else is on the team there? Oh, at at Impulse Space, mm -hmm. lots of folks that uh, have been former SpaceX. Uh, the propulsion team that I mentioned earlier, very experienced, very, very knowledgeable. Um, most of them are from uh, prior, our prior SpaceX, as well as other leads in the company. But what has that done? Uh, that's allowed us to take some of the best elements of what we know, uh, the, the experience that we gained, uh, the focus on execution, uh, and the focus on being able to make a reliable product. All of that came out of our our combined experience at SpaceX. Now, you've had a pretty successful year in fundraising, and uh, it, these are not really the best times probably to, to be doing a lot of fundraising. Do you think that the good times are over for fundraising in the foreseeable future for the space startups, or is that money going to be there for folks who have a dream? Yeah. I think, um, uh, as we all know, that the investment market certainly has changed in the last six months and that 
and that reflects what's happening in the overall economy. But uh, all good companies will continue to be funded. All good good business plans, good ideas uh, will continue to get support. The difference is, is probably in uh, the funding amounts and the valuations. But, but uh, will these companies continue uh, through this phase? I think so. And I actually consider all of it healthy so that the best companies survive and really make space special. And, and um, we find out who those companies are in this process. Are you anticipating uh, a round of, for instance, buyouts of companies that that show promise but are perhaps having a hard time becoming profitable? Will will those kinds of consolidations happen, or do you think some of these companies will just fall out and go by the wayside as a as a natural evolution? It's it's going to be a combination of the above. If one looks at, uh, for example, the number of launch companies uh, that are out there, and uh, I don't know what what metric you use, but it's over a hundred companies. Uh, the likelihood that all will survive is pretty low. Uh, the transferability of some of the technologies between companies may be limited, so there may be some integrations of companies. But I suspect that there will also be many companies that go by the wayside. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But it's no different than in any other industries, whether it's software as a service or any of the other tech, tech sectors, that sometimes there's consolidations and other times there's simply companies that, that will not be part of the surviving number of companies. You know your your company, and this just kind of occurs to me as we as we chat here. But your company deals in that last mile delivery, and there's a lot of talk these days about servicing spacecraft on orbit. What are the kind of the synergies between the last mile delivery and how you get things there, and then having something else come up and dock and and service a spacecraft on orbit? It's a great question, and it really addresses where where is space going. Uh, again, I talked about this model of, of traditionally Earth to orbit, Earth to orbit over and over again, mm-hmm. that, uh, that is really not scalable for a large-scale business. And that uh, treating LEO as a parking orbit and having a complement of launch vehicles that go to LEO and drop off their payloads and then reuse the second stage because one of the goals is the lowest cost per kilogram to a LEO orbit. And then the other part is the lowest cost per delivery from a LEO orbit, a parking orbit, to a final destination. That combination allows space commerce to grow. And, and so servicing is part of it, is the more one reuses a, uh, either a satellite or a vehicle, the more the cost per delivery, whatever metric one wants to use, goes down. And hence, the, the, the viability of space commerce goes up. And the profitability goes up. So, so whether it's in space manufacturing of various materials or products or pharmaceutical uh, types, or even things like commercial space stations for either payloads or humans, all of that needs to take into account the versatility that we we see on Earth. We we need the same versatility in space. So, to kind of answer your question, yeah, in service. Uh, in-space servicing is just a part of what has to have uh, viability, but it also has to have metrics around cost efficiency. 
You know, you, you mentioned uh, space stations, which brings to mind something else. You know, I'm thinking about your, your last mile delivery, and there's going to be a lot of automation for something to go into orbit and then go and rendezvous with, with yeah. something like a space station. Is that more of a, I mean, what, again, and let's talk about the synergies between what it is that you're doing and those kinds of resupply missions, for lack of a better word, to uh, one of the many commercial space stations that are on the drawing boards right now. Yes, the the process for uh, berthing or docking uh, that's been done on ISS, uh, International Space Station, uh, it's actually been done quite a few times. Mm -hmm. I think the more challenging exercise is going to be when one does in-space servicing of, of a satellite where there has to be, uh, if you take it to the next level, where there's not only refueling potentially, but also other repairs that are done, that's pretty challenging. Coming back a bit, the ability to grab uh, cooperating or non-cooperating orbital debris is also challenging. And so, so the, the autonomous systems that can address that kind of capability, yeah, that's what's going to come. And that's well within the technology that we have. We just have to implement it for space. So are some of the systems that you're developing now uh, adaptable to those kinds of missions to be able to oh, go yeah, out oh, yeah, and yeah. wander around and yeah, wander around and scoop up space debris and and find a way to deorbit it? Uh, again, the the key is one has to deorbit these uh, assets uh, at at a cost competitive uh, price. Uh, if one doesn't do that, then yes, that it's going to be difficult to to remove orbital debris. Barry, we're just about out of time, but I want you to take a moment and look at, if you will, over about the next 10 to 15 years, gaze into your crystal ball and mm -hmm. in the context of space commerce and tell us what you see. It's a great question. I love this question. Uh, I talked about orbital debris, and I think orbital debris is not necessarily a 10 to 15 year thing. I think it's, it's actually well within the next few years that we can do that. Uh, there are several companies that are addressing it, and we definitely want to do that. Though the other one that's really interesting is the notion of agility in space. Right now, the traditional notion is a satellite goes into an orbit and basically stays in that orbit until it decays or it's able to raise itself in its orbit. But what if, in fact, that asset is agile? So right now, uh, over the Ukraine, if you have a communications transponder, it's worth a lot of money compared to a transponder over some other place on Earth. What if you could start moving geostationary satellites to wherever there's a need and it gets the highest return? Uh, consider it like a mobile base station. If one has a transport vehicle that can move an asset around, all of a sudden that agility allows a commerce that couldn't be realized before and have limited this limited asset used in the best, in the best allocation. So, so there's that. Um, and then things like uh, space manufacturing, uh, production, and having the logistics for it, it's all coming. It's the cost per kilogram, cost per transport that uh, will decrease that makes it all possible. <clears throat> and kind of the bigger thing is once we have this transportation infrastructure in space, the notion of going beyond the inner solar system, so going beyond Mars, is well within our grasp because now you have space logistics that allows it and not being just Earth-based. 
When you talk about being agile in geostationary orbits, I, I thought those slots were assigned. And so it might be a, a challenge to say, oh, I, I want to take my my geostationary satellite that's uh, that's stationed at whatever it is west and move it. Sure. Um, there are going to be regulatory issues that go well, along with that course. as well. There are definitely regulatory issues, but, but um, the notion of a geostationary slot uh, from... Uh, I'll go back in time to 10 to 15 years ago, and a slot now has changed dramatically. Why? Because our ability to understand our location relative to other satellites has increased dramatically. So instead of being an orbital slot with potentially a degree or half a degree, that we're now talking about kilometers of separation, and we can even get closer. So so yes, it's just a technology thing uh, that regulators will work through. But the notion of being able to have an asset and make it available where it's needed, that's definitely in the cards. What about the notion, and I noticed, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, just recently ESA is, is looking for ideas for uh, nanosatellite swarms and the way that they'll have to fly in formation and things of that nature. Is that another piece of the technology that you're looking at to be able to make sure that that a hundred little satellites can all fly in formation and, and perform various duties? I think that's part of other people, uh, other opera, uh, satellite operators business, not necessarily what we have. We intend to have fleets that will be operating in various orbits. But, but again, space, uh, in, in, spite of, in spite of the orbital debris situation, space is actually a very big place. And <laughs> hence, things like swarms can definitely exist. Uh, the challenge really is to ensure that once a swarm has finished their, their mission, that they are cleaned up. Well, Barry, it's been an interesting conversation. I really appreciate your time today. And thank you so much for being our guest today. You bet. That's going to do it for this edition of the Xterra podcast. Check out our YouTube channel and be sure to click on subscribe so you can stay up to date on developments in space commerce and be notified when we post new videos. You can also get daily space commerce news at XterraJSC.com. And one thing more, be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at XterraJSC. Until next time, I'm Tom Patton. Thanks for joining us.